Hello, I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. For many of us, this is the high point of Greek art. These figures walk and stand and gesture like real bodies. You can imagine these figures coming to life, walking off the pedestal. In this episode, I speak with Tim Potts, director of the Getty Museum, Anne Wagner, professor emerita of art history at UC Berkeley, and contemporary sculptor Charlie Ray about the so-called Getty Bronze, a standing bronze sculpture of a young athlete that dates from sometime in the 4th or 3rd century BC and is the signature work in the collection of the Getty Villa. I met with Tim, Anne, and Charlie in a gallery at the Getty Villa where the Getty Bronze is on display. The sculpture is in good condition, although its feet are missing. Just how its feet were lost is a matter of some speculation, but it quite likely occurred when the ship transporting it from ancient Greece sank in a storm. When it was found by fishermen in the Adriatic Sea, encrusted with shells, coral, and mud, it had been submerged for some 2,000 years. Its history raises questions about the nature and scale of the imperial Roman trade in Greek bronzes and the relative aesthetic merits of the sculpture's water-damaged surface. As Tim is a specialist in ancient art, Anne, an historian of modern and contemporary art, and Charlie, a renowned sculptor, it was no surprise that they had different responses to the Getty Bronze. I began by asking Tim to describe the sculpture. It's a more or less life-size figure in bronze of um, probably a youth in a Phoebos, who's um, someone aged late teens, perhaps around 20. Um, he's clearly an, an athlete, and he's won a competition of some kind because he's wearing... You say he's clearly an athlete, and what is it about him that makes him seem so clearly to have been an athlete? The wreath. The wreath he has the wreath, hand. which is an, uh, a laurel or olive wreath, which was the traditional um, prize or signifier that you've won a, an athletic competition of some kind in either probably the Olympic Games, uh, the ones in Olympia, or the um, ones in Delphi. Um, and he's, he's gesturing with his right hand towards the wreath. He's either just placed it on his head or he's about to take it off, which you would often do as, uh, and then dedicate the wreath in honor of the gods. Um, so it could be putting it on or taking it off. In fact, so this would emulate an actual activity. Yes, they would do this um, often as a sort of sh- uh, sign of their piety to um, uh, dedicate their victory and the wreath to the gods. Um, he's shown naked as as athletes were. They tended to um, practice their the games, the competitions, nude. This was another expression of what we call her- the heroic nudity of classical um, life, where you know great heroes, whether they're warriors, athletes, or whatever, they were proud of their bodies. It was the expression of their strength and virility and everything else. So they tended to um, uh, you know, w- work out in the gymnasium, uh, have the competitions naked, what then oil the, the bodies. What would be the purpose of the sculpture? This, this okay. The sculpture would be um, a commemorative, celebratory sculpture to, um, to, to celebrate the victory of this athlete. And a, a particular athlete. A particular athlete who had won at a particular um, Games. And these would be dedicated uh, either in the place where the games had been held, so normally Delphi or Olympia, um, or perhaps in the hometown of the, um, the victor himself that the, the town would pay for. These are expensive objects. Bronze was a precious material. 
Um, and uh, these would be set up at the hometown to celebrate this great achievement, or as I say, to the gods in the sanctuary of Apollo um, in Delphi or of Zeus at Olympia. This was a common practice, um, part of, if you like, the celebration of athletic achievement. Um, we can't tell really what sort of um, uh, athlete he was. He's, the age of the figure is such that he's not yet, um, you know, fully formed uh, man with, you know, the very, um, you know, the extreme musculature that you get in, in some of the sculptures. Um, he's, he's not a boxer or anything like that. He doesn't have quite the physique for it. If he's meant to represent a particular athlete, that is someone who, an athlete that might have been known to a public, um, uh, is there any indication that we actually know the names of any such athletes that were mem memorialized by sculptures? Yes, there's sometimes textual references to, you know, particularly um, famous and uh, successful athletes. Sometimes on the basis of the sculptures, you'll get the name of the athlete that they're celebrating. Um, but of course, we don't have the base from this one, um, so we don't know who he was, um, and, and probably never will. Obviously, the physical condition or the material condition of the sculpture indicates that it was removed from the base by being torn from the base or somehow removed in such a way that it's lost the lower parts of the legs and the feet. Is that some indication that's meaningful to us of how it was um, re removed from its location in Olympia or wherever it was? Um, I mean, was it probably it, it, it could have happened a couple of ways. One is because it was found in the sea, in, in yeah. the sea off the coast of Italy, yeah. in international waters off the coast of Italy. So it was it had been removed from from Athens or Olympia. Exactly, or and I think there's two major possibilities. One is that the damage was done, it was separated from the feet when it was actually just removed from the base for transport, presumably to Rome or somewhere else in Italy. I suspect the corrosion and the damage took place when the ship sank when it went down, um, maybe in, in it being retrieved in the nets of the fishermen, which is how it was re recovered, maybe it's still attached to its stone base, maybe the weight, you know, then it was, uh, was separated through that. I think more likely this uh, happened because they would not, you know, without the feet, it'd be very hard to display and it's, a da it's damaged goods. So, and they would have been more careful than that. I suspect it wouldn't have been transported in this damaged state without feet. Um, probably they would have had them repaired or something before transport. And, and why was it transported? I mean, it was part of the uh, trade and antiquities at the time? trade. Um, I mean, the sculpture was probably made in the fourth century BC, um, at the time, around the time of the sculptor Lysippus, and we can come back to that. Um, but when the Romans conquered the um, Mediterranean, uh, most of the Mediterranean world, and Greece in particular in the mid second century BC, from then on, um, there was a massive trade of bringing back these famous, um, mostly bronze, but also marble sculptures from Greece to Rome. And this flourished from the second century, first century BC and into the first century AD. And thousands of sculptures would have been shipped, as I said, back to, to Rome and other major cities in Italy. Um, and, and in fact, you know, a lot of what we know about Greek sculpture now comes from these works that have been found either in Italy or that were lost. We're beginning to find more and more of these under, in the water because some of these ships went down in storms. So if this had particular meaning in its location, we'll call it Olympus uh, as the site for which it may have been made and therefore meaningful in that site, and it was removed and then taken to uh, Rome or Italy, um, it wouldn't have had that same meaning, I guess. It would have become now a, a prized possession, an, yes. an, an antiquity, as yes. opposed to a um, They would have been set up, um, they could have been set up again in gymnasia and other public spaces. 
but they were also being actively acquired by private individuals, wealthy people who owned villas in Pompeii and Herculaneum, places like that, or in Rome itself. And the emperors themselves, of course, were great collectors of these things. And there's a famous Lysippus, work by Lysippus, in the style of this sculpture, um, known as the Apoxiomenus, the, the scraper, um, which was, uh, had been installed in the baths in Rome and was one of these very um, famous public works on public display. And then Tiberius, uh, the emperor, decided it was so nice, he'd like to have it in his private apartment, so he took it. And there was such an outcry um, from the public that he had to be agreed to put it back on public display. The Greeks in the Roman period continued to make versions, copies, whatever you want to call them, and new sculptures in the style of the earlier masters or of their own time. So the production of bronze work in Greece continued. And a lot of the market though now was not for um, patrons or clients in Greece, it was to be shipped then back to Rome. So there are things both genuine, say works of the fourth century being shipped back, first century BC copies or versions of those sculptures being made afresh and shipped to, to Rome. Works once they arrived in Rome would become models in workshops there for copies either in um, bronze but more often now um, in marble. At this point, Anne Wagner and Charlie Ray joined the conversation, which moved to a consideration of the sculpture's breaks and losses and the sense that its aliveness, or inner life, may be enhanced by the sculpture's aged appearance, by its scars and discoloration. Tim, one of the questions that this conversation about its transport raises for me goes back to the break that um, you already referenced, and which um, theoretically at least could lead to two scenarios. One would be that it was broken off um, intentionally just to get it and so that it would eventually be rendered up to produce more bronze. But your scenario is that it was transported in order to be an object of luxury and to make its way potentially into some Roman collection. But the, the rub in there that I'm trying to understand that I want to ask you about is, um, do you think then that it was transported on its base if it was going into a Roman collection? And the reason that I ask that is because I sort of had the feeling that one, one reason it would break at its ankles off the base would be if it was weighted to, to stand up properly, or if the lower, if it was securely affixed, it would break in that way. So um, do you think that there was any chance that it was robbed for plunder, or do you think it was transported with its base, which would give it kind of more, I don't know, erratic meaning in the, in the Roman context? I, I think there was such an appetite for this sculpture and such a market for it. I think mm -hmm. it's very likely that it was being transported as a work of art to be collected and you know, admired yeah. as a work of art, not just to be recycled, because they could have melted it down in Greece. That and that's would, a much yeah, easier way to do yeah. things. But I agree entirely with you. The, the ankles are the weak point in most sculptures. That's where things tend to break when there's a, particularly if there's a very heavy, at the bases, the plinths, of course, are stone. Well, it could be bronze or it could be stone, and they're very heavy. So if in going down in the shipwreck, there would be a point of tension, um, it's going to snap most likely the ankles. And that's my suspicion, that it was actually during the shipwreck that this was disconnected from the feet and the base, and yeah. they're probably at the bottom of the ocean. I mean, the ankles seem to be really sort of revealing points at the moment we 
start to think about its fabrication, partly because the way that the, the metal sort of rips. Well, would, it, would it not bend more, though? Like, let's just say if it had this great weight of a stone base and it tumbled off a ship in a storm, let's just say, and it, you know, it was a shock hit the bottom or, or yeah. someone went to plunder it off the base or something. I mean, it's just these breaks are, are, as you said, snaps. And my experience with metals, I mean, bronze has a more of a brittleness to it than something with an alloy like steel, but would it snap like that? Or, I mean, does this follow a seam line, per se? There's a tear. I mean, look at the very irregular, um, you know, contour of, of the, the break. It's not, if they were cutting off, yeah. if they were no, cutting it's not, it off, yeah. it's, not a it's, cut. it's happening it's through not, a, it's an accident of some kind, yeah, I think. It, and so that sort of actually lends weight to the idea that it was being transported to Rome as a work of art and not, not some sort of plunder notion, which would be the alternative. It really looks like the violence of accident. You know. and, and Tim, you referenced Lysippus yes. with regard to this. And um, it, it would have been prized if it had been by Lysippus, or thought to have been by Lysippus, or in the manner of Lysippus. I mean, in, in particular, that association privileged this as an object for the trade. Yeah, right? absolutely. I should emphasize the, the view that this is either by Lysippus or in the style of Lysippus, who was the major sculptor of the 4th century BC, was the court sculptor of Alexander the Great, almost certainly traveled with him on his conquests. Uh, it's certainly in that style of that moment, and the quality of it is very high, and therefore, um, you know, what we would expect of a Lysippus. None of his bronzes that we can be sure are actual originals by him have survived. Like this, they are attributions. So we can't say that it's Lysippus for sure. There isn't an inscription or anything else to tell us. But from what the ancient authors um, describe of his style, um, the nature of the, his particularly renowned for the sort of naturalism of his works and the hair, the animation of the hair and the fluid musculature. The, you might notice this is a, it's partly his youth, relative youth, but also the style, the sort of fluid, softer form of the musculature. Whereas in the um, earlier in the classical period, there were these sharper divisions. They were sort of beefier, um, more angular, if you like. This has a more natural fluid stance, which is exactly what we hear um, was typical of Lysippus's work. So it's a, I think it's a plausible attribution, but like many of these things, we can't you know, be absolutely um, definitive. And it's those qualities, it's Lysippan qualities, I mean, that feed back into the idea and complicate the idea that it's a straightforward portrait because there's enough about that visage to take it away from individuality into a kind of not quite a heroization, but an idealization in Lysippan terms of what the hero might be. You know, he's a bit like Alexander, but he also has, uh, he has consciousness, I think. I don't know whether Charlie would agree, but he sort of has a, he has an internal vision. Oh, yeah. He has, he's, there's a lot of attitude that he's looking towards this dedicatory. His, 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 his whole body has it. Yeah. I mean, look at, and this is kind of fascinating. If you look at the penis to the testicles, you know, they're not flat on the ball sack. It's, it's lifted slightly. You know, there's space between the testicle and the uh, penis. So, you know, normally that's all going to be, you know, kind of dropping flaccid, together, yeah. you know, more. And it, it isn't that it's not flaccid, but it's, it's given at the artist's 
have given it and 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 the, a sense of life. Of yeah, the kind of panoima of the ball sack and and it, yeah, just a sense of life. And then this adjusting or taking the 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 the, the reef on or off, but this just this gesture of it, it's so delicate here, you know. And that's where thought is, you know. His yeah. mentha, he's thinking, he's you know. So there, there's all this. Uh, uh, you know, like alloy of intentionality, you know, just pushing through the musculature and the gestures of the piece. But that, that tension, extraordinary. that tension between stylization or idealization and particular, the particularity of a kind of intention that you identified in is characteristic of what we call the Hellenistic style, right? I mean, that's, that's something that distinguishes from the, the classical. So this actually featured in an exhibition that we organized here at the Getty center um, around the concept of the Hellenistic style or Hellenistic sculpture. Um, and so Tim, talk to us about that and the role that this sculpture played in the development of that exhibition. Well, it is one of the great early masterpieces of, of that, that transitional period from classical into Hellenistic. Hellenistic art is defined as the period from Alexander the Great, so the, the 320s BC basically, um, down to the first century BC. And Lysippus is the transitional figure. I mean, he starts his career, say, in the mid-4th century, perhaps as early as the 360s, um, and then continues, as I say, working um, for Alexander. The, the famous portraits of Alexander are believed to be by Lysippus, um, and had a very long career, perhaps even down close to um, 300, so a career of 60 or maybe even 70 years. And he alone is said to have produced, Pliny tells us that he produced over 1,500 sculptures, so huge output. Um, so Lysippus introduces, if you like, the, the Hellenistic period, and then other artists who, um, uh, you know, in, in his wake and others, um, continue the trend towards both greater naturalism, but also a much more intense interest in the inner life of the subject, the emotion of um, and the pathos, expressing uh, in, a, in, a, in a much more evocative and emotional way the power of the warrior in battle, of some the pathos of someone wounded and dying. Um, you know these extremes of emotion. So you, mouths open, um, brows get furrowed, dramatic gestures. Um, all of the qualities that we associate with, if you like, Baroque art in an Italian 17th century. These same qualities come to the fore in the Hellenistic period from the later fourth through the first century BC. So it, it, in, for many of us, this is the high point of Greek art. This is art which has gone through its austere, rigid, um, heroic, but rather formal phases in the archaic and classical period. And here it truly comes to life. These, these uh, figures walk and stand and gesture like real bodies. They have their weight, as this one does, on one leg, trailing the other one. Um, the poses, the gestures. You can imagine these figures coming to life, walking off the pedestal. And in fact, the ancient authors talk about this, saying that Lysippus himself, he had this great uh, ability to imbue his figures with a great sense of reality and a quality of being living. All that they lacked was actual breath. And in that respect, uh, to you, Anne, the question, you've written that every work of sculpture, whether abstract or figurative, is both a material and a bodily entity. What did you mean by that? And, and it's, it's related, I think, to also something you've written about the sculpture having the capacity to invest inanimate materials with some vitalizing quality without ever quite erasing the work's thingness from our minds. So that, that tension that it is both 
yeah. physical thing and then that yeah. which is invested with life. This continues to strike me as the most marvelous thing about sculpture that you always have to play between your sensory knowledge that you, you can touch it and it's made out of tangible materials oftentimes that you know crop up elsewhere in in life so you might see a hunk of stone and you know that it could be used to make a building or it could be used to make a statue and then you kind of think between building and statue or between you know blockiness and statue or these or marbleness and statue they, these things go back and forth and in the case of this work um, I mean I think Tim sort of already spoke to to it and when he used the word fluidity to talk about Lysippin's style one of the things that bronze is and is made to be is malleable it's fired and it becomes a liquid and that um, liquid shaping capacity that liquid takes the shape of the mold to which it's assigned but you can't forget that meantime that you're looking at a metallic form so body and bronze become one but they're never entirely one that's what I'm meaning that you you can't um, you can't merge them and they're not meant to be merged partly because the sculpture and the sculptor will capitalize on what he or she knows about the qualities of the material that's being worked with. And of so. course, over the centuries in which this has survived, um, its materiality has changed because of the conditions in which it was yeah. buried for so long in the sea. And so we're looking at something that is quite different, or at least different, than what, it, uh, the, what you know, the, those at the time of yeah. its making saw in its surface. Yeah, well, I was thinking about that, the, you know, the way that we... Um, that the patination of ancient bronzes has changed so much over time and scholars think that they flashed and were brighter than they are now. And I was thinking how grateful I am that I get to know them in their darkness. And also this one, I mean, the surface of this sculpture is sort of almost impossibly beautiful. You know, it actually reminds us of other kinds of things in the world, kind of amazing conglomerate rocks. And it's so full of color and I'm you know if, if um, there color. are such things as happy accidents yeah, right. there right. is at least part of happy accident it's sad that it lost its feet but it's fantastic yeah. that it it's gained a very the surface modern, it's a very modern aesthetic though liking this yeah. for the Greeks this was of course it's bright green and then it's almost black and then it's a, yeah. this deep bronzy brown what did it look like originally what do we know about how original bronzes looked well it would have been this more gleaming golden color and what makes up the color well the the alloys um, the amount of tin tin is the main other alloy this was you know anywhere from five to ten percent this one from the analyses we've done is about 10%, which is in the normal range, but at the, at the higher end. Um, lead and, that would and other led things. To a yeah, some lead. Glowing greenish or glowing goldish more color? Glowing golden. I mean, the tin makes it less coppery and more um, yellow, if you like, um, and more golden colored. They inlaid parts with copper, the nipples here and the lips. Are, are those copper? Inlaid in copper, yep. So they would, have, they would have been a, a redder color in contrast yes, to yes, the gold exactly. color of the body. The, the pure copper color. Um, the teeth sometimes, I'm not sure we've got teeth with this because the lips are more or less closed, but sometimes the teeth are silvered and um, uh, the eyebrows will also be normally be copper. Um, sheets of copper very delicately um, cut. 
and then uh, applied. Um, but the overall effect and the was eyes the golden glass. And the eyes would be inlaid, usually with um, glass, but it can be also, you know, uh, marble or white stones or even uh, shell or bone for the um, the white of the eye. But normally then glass. Um, sometimes things like obsidian for the pupil. It, it varies, but it's glass, some combination of hard stones, glass, occasionally um, shell and bone. I have been thinking about um, this idea of brightness and one of the things which is so striking in the Iliad is that in warfare and when, when men appear to fight before each other to compete in games, they, have, they shine, they have brightness. And if we think about a place of dedication where these works had a glow or a gleam. Um, they had this sort of quality of a sort of apparition, and, which is what shining does. And I like to think about that sort of apparitional moment within a ceremonial and sacred and dedicatory context. And I also think it's essential that we understand it as kind of being the flip side of war, that the shine is there in both places. I don't ever want to see them all shining in any mock-up. You know, I would never, ever want to see the Parthenon with a bunch of shining figures around it because it wouldn't have, it wouldn't be able to carry for me um, that marvelousness because I wouldn't be infused with belief, my belief. But to know that that was part of it, I think, I find sort of magical. I find that a magical knowledge, as, but maybe not the knowledge that you or I might take about the pressure of space on the body or the fluidity of the muscles or the tightness of the ball sack and its yeah. seedy contents and all of those other things that seem so marvelous. I I'm, I'm, have I'm slightly different. I'd love to be able to you, walk yeah. through the Acropolis yeah of the fourth, fifth or fourth century BC, see yeah. or, or one of the great you know, gymnasia or other things, to see the architecture, um, which also the, mob, the, the columns and the, the, the uh, architectural sculptures would have been painted, the, the marble sculptures would have been largely painted, these bronzes would have been all gleaming. We imagine them that being very too bright, too, in a way, kitsch. Because the modern, as we were saying earlier, the modern reconstructions of it are that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if, if you were actually able to experience the total ensemble like that, whether it would have been or not. And I would love to be able to experience so that way. Yeah. yeah, I may not be our aesthetic at all. We are so um, trapped in this idea that marble is this beautiful, pure, gleaming white material, and it neutralizes the colors. Um, but of course, it's t- we've known since the 18th century that's totally wrong, yeah. but we can't get outside that mindset. Or, or equally a bronze, that it is a singular color as opposed to having multiple colors, a polychromy. So would it matter to you, and looking at it, or Charlie, looking at this, and this idea that imbued in this material is a sense of life, if the color of the copper of the, of the, the, the nipples or the, or the glass of the eyes or the silver of the teeth, if that were apparent to you, would that breathe yet more life in the sculpture? Well, I mean, one has seen works where this is true, where they, you know, for, for some marvelous reason, these, these parts of the work have uh, survived. And uh, sometimes they do bring more of uh, this, this sense of aliveness. But I don't, um, 
I mean, there's a funny little Roman head in this museum, a little, a little portrait, a Roman portrait of a girl with her eyes still in there. And, um, but she's, she doesn't really have aliveness because they're not all that well done. They're kind of, you know, it really, it really depends. But it's, it's to us. Yeah. And then there's to them. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So like, it's, it's like there is, after I look at this, there's not a, anything lacking that I want to see it differently or put it back into it. I would gladly go. There's no such thing as a time machine, but I would gladly go to the Acropolis and look at how they were painted and how things were. You know, I'm sure I wouldn't understand them. You know, it's, it's like the old idea, if your dog could talk to you, Wittgenstein's idea, if your dog could talk to you, you wouldn't be able to understand what it had to say. I think if I went back there and saw these painted with glass eyes and sandals and all that, I mean, we had a hard enough time when I was young coming to terms with the Degas in the tutu, you know, with the ribbon in the hair. I, I mean, it would look so, I wouldn't, it isn't that they would look kitschy, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't have the ability to understand them just as coming up, they would be horrendous if someone from the ancient world saw it like this. They say, you know, beyond repair. The surface is gone. You know, it's big, throw it out, melt it down, start again. You know, but it isn't that, you know, like the marbles that, oh, we were wrong, they were painted. You know, I'm kind of believe this thing that, that age makes something. And, you know, that, that there is something so marvelous about it that it launched it into time. And it yeah. still works today. Let, let me try something else on you. So of the techniques that, are, that uh, sculptors use to enliven uh, the, the sculpture further than the form itself. And so I'm assuming, and I think I, yeah, I can see it, that the sculptor went to some bother to tool around the fingernails that's that, beautiful. That, you know, to, to bring them to life or, or f- for him to feel that the sculpture was complete, that it wouldn't have been completed without it, even if that tooling wasn't particularly visible uh, in the original location in which the sculpture would have been seen. In other words, for the artist to finish the work, it had to do something that probably would not be seen or appreciated by all those who saw it, but in his mind, it was necessary to give the fingernails that completion. They did. They chased, the, 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 often in the hair, things like, as you say, details of hands and so on. A fabricator told me uh, on the East Coast that he was doing, he had a huge falling out with Stella, but he was doing this big project for Stella, one of the big hanging reliefs. Frank Stella. Yeah, and, and Frank was unhappy with it. He looked at the back of the thing that hangs it on the wall, the hanger, just look at this crap! And the fabricator said, oh, ain't nobody going to see it. And Frank Sella said, I already have. So all these chasing and, and, and you know, it, 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 it's part of the fall through the punch, the artfulness of it, I think, that it wouldn't be any other way. There is no back or hidden part. Yeah. You know? That's true. Can I go back to the, the portraiture aspect of this? Because it's yeah. a key thing about Helen Stigart. This is the period. We know there were portraits done in the classical period, um, but most of the sculpture you find through the fifth and earlier fourth century, the faces tend to be sort of more stereotypical. And it's in the Hellenistic period that you get what we would instantly recognize as you know, unequivocally uh, portraiture. And, and it's both um, uh, because subjects are often very young or are middle-aged or elderly, and you see, start seeing all the wrinkles, the warts, all the different expressions. So, 
in the Hellenistic period, we do have a, um, a, a real flourishing of portraiture as um, one of the main sort of threads that distinguishes Hellenistic sculpture. But this is the period when there's endless debate, and every scholar has a different view, whether the, a given face, in this case of the Getty Bronze, is still more a type, or is it actually now an individual? Can we say, this is what this person looked like? Um, it was whoever said it earlier, there are aspects of the, um, the brow and the nose that, that look rather like the portraits that we attribute, of Alexander, that yeah. are attributed to Lysippus. Um, to me, this is one of those in-between um, uh, faces that really it's impossible to know. I mean, someone could have looked exactly like this and the artist did their best and, 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 and achieved a good likeness, or they may just be playing off what was a fairly conventional mid-fourth century face. And there's many other sculptures of the fourth century that have faces you know, quite similar to this. Some of them by Lysippus, some no doubt by but other part sculptors. Of Anne's interest in sculpture and its lifelikeness quality depends on a sense of convincing portrayal of a, of a person, right? Well, it can't no, be abstracted, I, no? No, I don't, I don't think aliveness in a sculpture means realism by any means. I really, I really don't think so. I think that aliveness has to do with, um, you know, the physicality and the, of the work as a whole, you know, and the interchange between representation and medium. And I don't think that that's only conveyed by imitation. I mean, aliveness and deadness oftentimes go together hand in hand in sculpture. But you asked me in another context about Hinoki, and which is Charlie's um, life-size recarving of a enormous wood log. And you asked me something about how the work on that material contributes to its aliveness or deadness, I think, more or less. And um, there, the aliveness is not doesn't simply rest in the, the remaking of a log that we um, sort of onabanically know was a tree and a tribute, you know, and, and think of in terms of it a living thing. But the aliveness has to do with the ways in which the carvers differentiated the kind of flow of their tools through their wooden material um, and gave it its own sort of um, utterly animated surface, which is the aliveness of their touch and the, the you know, the each... Um, cut and scoop of the tool contributes to a kind of pattern which is the flow of the work. So it's the um, evidence period. of working as opposed to the simulation of re the reality, the model of the sculpture itself. It's the sense that there's evidence that it has been made by someone. It can, yeah, or, but also that that making has a particular effect. I mean, you know, in Char I mean, Charlie's work is a fabulous example of this because the impression of aliveness can come through so many different ways. I mean, for example, in, um, in the stainless steel works, it comes in the polish, and the polish does all kinds of things with light. Which this is Charlie's works Charlie's made of stainless works, steel. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in, in this work, I don't know, we could, I mean, we've been talking about the different ways, but it, it's aliveness, and I mean, I think part of it has to do with all of these um, things that Charlie has been pointing to that are, I mean, you could sum them up as, you talk about kind of the pressure of the world on the body and what gives it its idiosyncrasy and where do those impulsions come from, you know, and that is how we situate it 
we understand it as a particular body situated in space and within gravity. There's great but the, feelings of that, the yeah. fingers, and this great complexity of different, you know, yeah. kind of fractal space. You know, there must have been in time, you know, the place where it was, this great yeah. kind of civic space around it. And then, you know, you can go next to between the arm, then between the hands, between the dick and the balls. I mean, it, it's a space just, and, and the power of that space never diminishes anywhere, and it's in a, and it's in a kind of flowing relationship yeah. to... to, to uh... But it's also, too, I think, in, I mean, one of the, if you actually situate yourself right in front of the work, and then you kind of see, I mean, when I first learned about sculpture and antiquity, you, you know, you had the S-curve, and, you know, you were, you were allowed to, like, feel your weight shift on your own body as you, in the hip shot pose and all of these classics of the teaching of antique sculpture. But it's so much more than that. You can see, you know, these tensions kind of flowing through the body again and back and forth and back and forth. And these poses are, which look so natural and easy, when you try to put yourself in them, they're actually quite difficult. They're not as natural as they look, which is part of the brilliance of them. They're slightly artificial when you, as you find out when you try to imitate them, but yet they have this sense of of a body that is, you know, in in a natural, normal um, um, motion. But you know, there's a great, celebration of its making that that is yeah. what links up to the celebration of the winner. I would go farther than the celebration of the, the winner. I mean, I would say that this winner um, is a type of the masculine. I mean, he is an epitome of, you know, sort of what the young male can do and be. Do you think that the, the head is properly placed on the, on the body yeah. in its restoration? It, it, you think well, the arms detached. are probably... It, it, was, it was created. So, and one of the things is it's cast as one piece, which is not often the case. It's not yeah, that's very interesting. Well, the I'm... arms are off, though, right? I mean, look... Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. No, they've, they've been rejoined. That's clear. And you can see certain sort of plug, you know, fills and stuff, as yeah. you would expect from... I, I, I really that. think from our earlier conversation, if you look at these breaks, and I, again, I'm not an expert, but, you know, it just, the geometry of it, it really, I mean, that's how we put things together in the studio. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the extremities are cast solid, like the hands, probably here solid. Um, and sometimes the feet can also be... But, but back to this orientation relative to the, to the base and how it's been installed on the base and the question that you raised just before we yeah. got on to taping yeah. as to whether it should be projecting forward more than it currently is. And, and what's the meaning of that projection? Is that any relationship to the, the posture? Well, but, but without feet, I think if you put it more, for, let's say it was more forward and that could work really well with feet, but with, without feet, if you put it more forward, it's going to look like you really made a mistake. Yeah, now, I think it's. I think it's about right. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to work with what you got. I think, and I think it's about right. I mean, we did have a chance in the exhibition to look at it with others where the feet are preserved and therefore the the alignment of the body, you know, the the verticality was um, correct, was original. Right. And there was some. We had some discussion about whether this could be adjusted slightly, but it is only if if there's an adjustment, it would be very slight. I think it is more or less right. Here, let's go. One, one last question, and then we should wrap up because of, of time. But when you, when you look at the back, the sculpture from the back as opposed to the front, there seems to be um, a, a greater adolescence su- suggested 
to this figure, it seems to me, because there's less articulation of musculature in the back than there is in the front. In the front, the figure looks like, I don't know what, a 20-year-old or some mature figure. But this on the back has a kind of tenderness to it, a kind of not yet fully developed muscularity. Is there a sense in this liveness to it, this presence that it has, of a vulnerability as well as a strength? And I don't know. I think it's of a piece. I mean, he is... Not yet, as has been said, he's, not, he's, he's more than a boy, but he's not quite a man. He's in that in-between. Um, the, the back is you know, less articulated, but then backs, backs are. Um, but even the pectorals and the, the abdomen here at the front, they're quite soft and gently articulated. Um, I suppose, that, to me, the fluidity of the musculature is pretty consistent between what you'd expect on the front and the back, but... I think it, it is fairly consistent. And one of the things that um, I was remarking to myself earlier was that um, part of the Greek tradition in the male nude is to really emphasize the, the muscles that... What, these kind of muscles that go from along the tops, what, I don't know the name of them, this kind of abdominal girdle that, that, are, that, you know, that makes a kind of quite raised triangle and that you see yeah, a lot, but yeah, all that, you know, and he doesn't have that. And he has a, a lovely, his belly is a kind of sticky-outy belly a little bit. It's a, it's a little bit of a soft belly. It's not, you know, nowadays men, it, you know, you go for the six-pack and there's no six-pack here. Mm-hmm. So, so if seen as it was seen in the context of the exhibition, Power and Pathos, with this boxer, this other sculpture, yeah, this tired old man, brutalized and cauliflower ears. Cauliflower ears. This sense of his greatness is that youthfulness and that power, that a, a victory at an early stage of life. And a, and a sense that that might last forever, that it might not be compromised by aging. Yeah, well, this is supposed to stop, it does stop time, you know, this is a, it's kind of like Cleobus and Byton, and they're dying at their apogee, you know, it, sculpture does stop time in some basic way. The exhibition we referenced near the end of our discussion was the Getty Museum's exhibition, Power and Pathos, Bronze Sculpture of the Hellenistic World, which was on view at the Getty Center from July to November 2015. To learn more about that exhibition, to see the Getty Bronze in the context of other Greek bronzes, and to find more resources for this episode, visit getty.edu slash podcasts. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Look for new episodes of Art and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud. And thanks for listening. <laughs>